drug testing first, mandatory minimum second, three strikes and your outlaws third. And by the time those three things got done, we had an awful lot of people locked up. It's important for us to remember that it's misuse of the compound. We can misuse cannabis. We can misuse psychedelics. Psilocybin, yeah. Yeah, people do. So, And when you're in a misuse pattern, you need to get help. And, and sometimes that help is a traditional 12-step program. Sometimes that help is uh, a harm reduction approach to sobriety, which Cali Sober is very synonymous to harm reduction. That's where I think the real separation between female leadership and men. Men tend to create transactions and deals. Uh, women tend to create more community. And I, I like creating community. I think it's fun. It'll make you live longer. Yes, absolutely. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind, to the far reaches of the universe. This is Neurons to Nirvana. Over the past five weeks, Neurons to Nirvana has featured both many of the artists and the creative visionaries behind Utopia Fest, a truly one-of-a-kind music festival. Not everyone is able to make the journey to the tiny town of Utopia, Texas, but hopefully some of you will be able to grasp a small sense of utopia from the prior episodes as the guests describe their feelings during the Discover Utopia sessions. What many may not realize is only 45 minutes from Utopia lies the small town of Uvalde, a town that recently has become a center of heartbreak, tragedy, and outrage after the senseless loss of 19 elementary students and two teachers killed by another mass shooter. My heart is heavy and my deepest condolences go out to the families of the victims who are suffering such grief and loss as well as the entire community of Uvalde. In addition to offering both my thoughts and prayers, I feel compelled to address the pressing issue of gun control. If gun violence is a mental health crisis, as some talking points have been politicized recently, then it correlates to the mission and objective of my next guest, Andrew D'Angelo. According to the Texas Observer, prisons and jails have become America's largest provider for mental health services. In fact, the largest mental health facility in Texas is the Harris County, which includes Houston and its neighboring communities jail, and second is the Dallas County Jail. As I hear politicians denounce gun violence while also closing psychiatric hospitals and limiting health care services for mental health treatment, I am becoming increasingly perplexed how an argument can be made that gun violence would be solved with mental health care, yet the best mental health care that the state of Texas can offer is not available until after someone is incarcerated. Now, why is this important and what does this have to do with the guests featured on this episode? It relates to who is incarcerated and how much money and effort has been spent within the prison system punishing individuals for possession, consumption, or production of a plant or more specifically, weed. Cannabis pioneer, co-founder of the nonprofit medical cannabis dispensary Harborside, Weed Wars reality TV star, and Forbes contributor, Andrew D'Angelo speaks about a variety of topics related to plant medicine and cannabis legislation. One of his most passionate advocacy positions is to free every prisoner that has been incarcerated unjustly for cannabis and in many places where it has been not only decriminalized, but in fact now even legal through the Last Prisoner Project. His mission stems from a very personal family experience, and it conveys how our personal experiences fuel an unrelenting persistence to advocate for change. Andrew is an exceptional individual who has made it his mission in life to help others navigate the confusing regulations and commercial aspects around cannabis. Andrew has an important call to action for all of us on ways to get involved from the grassroots education to voting to personal entrepreneurship. 
Even if you may not believe in cannabis decriminalization personally, I ask you keep your mind open as Andrew provides a powerful playbook on how to have a successful advocacy and involvement program to invoke change on any single issue that you might be very passionate about currently in today's very polarizing cultural and political climate. Andrew's is cannabis, and after you listen to our discussion, I believe you'll understand why exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to Andrew D'Angelo. Andrew, how are you? How are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Tom. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to speak to you. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of my podcasts that I've released thus far, but the premise of it and what you do is aligned, I think, pretty well. So let's dive into the last prisoner project. Would you okay. mind telling telling me and the audience uh, how that the genesis and how that all came about? Sure. Well, I've been trading and activating and doing all kinds of things with the cannabis plant for my entire career, and so has my older brother Steve. And we've always. You know, my very one of my earliest memories as a nine year old boy was going to visit my brother in prison for a cannabis arrest that he had. And this was in the 1970s. And wow. and, and as we had our careers, our friends, our family members, people we loved got busted, went to jail as we even when we opened Harborside in 06, even though we had a license to dispense medical cannabis, lots of our growers and lots of our patients were still getting busted by the federal government or even the state government if you didn't have all your credentials to be a patient exactly right. So it was a problem that we have had in our lives for a long time. And so when we exited Harborside and we had a little more time on our hands, we decided to start a nonprofit organization called Last Prisoner Project so that the mission, there would be someone on earth <laughs> whose mission it was to free all cannabis prisoners on earth. And that's what Last Prisoner Project's mission is. We also reintegrate prisoners into society with housing and healthcare and education and all kinds of reentry services. About half of our budget goes to reentry. And then we also have a policy arm where we try to, it's very hard to get people out of prison one at a time. Um, one, we're a post-conviction organization. That means you've exhausted all your appeals and the only hope you have to get out is either to serve the rest of your sentence or for a governor or a president to pardon you or, or issue clemency. And those clemency petitions and pardon petitions are extremely burdensome for lawyers and our legal team. So our policy arm tries to work with lawmakers to pass a law that says, let's get all these people out at once uh, so that we can, you know, instead of one at a time, we're getting people out. It's called retroactive release. Right. Um, and we haven't been able to get retroactive release anywhere yet. It's Nowhere? Not anywhere? Nope. Not anywhere. Wow. And it's a real shame. Lawmakers are hesitant to do it, you know, um, soft on crime and all that sort of thing, which is, yeah. you know, small and outdated thinking. But that's the reality. And, and, and that's what we're up against. So that's why we exist. And that's why we have to raise money and we have to, you know, do a celebrate our constituents who get out and work hard to get the ones that aren't out out and um you know we hope to be done and <laughs> we hope to close shop someday because everybody's out and everybody's reintegrated and we don't need to do this anymore that would be i'd love to see that in my lifetime so that, that that's the ultimate goal for last prisoner project absolutely i would love to see that as well i mean this this has been going on for way too long Let's go back. I'm interested. Humor me, uh, if you don't mind. Back to your brother in the 70s. How much uh, marijuana was he busted with? What was the weight? Or Oh, it's a very small amount. He was going through Dulles Airport. Dulles Airport is in northern Virginia. Right. Virginia, Virginia is a southern state. 
and it, it's a very conservative state in those days, even more conservative than it is now. And they threw you in jail, even if you were white guys like us. Yeah. Uh, and so he had a few grams of weed. He had some cash, I think, too. So, of course, they thought he was a dealer. Right. Um, which he was. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but so, so you got to make a buck somehow. Right. <laughs> that's right. And um, and he was very young. He's 18 years old when this happened. 18 yeah. years old. Yeah, and, an adult, uh, technically. Yeah. Right. And but they put him in an adult prison and. You know, and and he was locked up for five or six months, I think it was, and had some years of probation after that that he had to deal with. And, you know, if he had been a black or brown person, he might have been locked up for years, not months. Uh, So in that respect, we were a little bit lucky, but, but it was a very traumatic thing for our family. It was a really traumatic thing for me as a kid to go visit my older brother in jail. And it was probably most definitely most traumatic for Steve, who was the one that was locked up. So, and this has been happening every day. I just, I just featured someone in my Forbes article a few weeks ago, who's getting ready to go serve five years in federal prison for a couple hundred pounds of weed. Uh, Would that be Kevin Allen by chance? Kevin Allen is someone else. Yeah, someone else, yeah. Um, Kevin Allen's one of these folks that is a three strikes victim of the three strikes laws. So he he actually only had a few grams of weed on his third strike, but he's he he got a life sentence um, in Louisiana for that. Um, or is it Mississippi? One of those two. Louisiana, um, I read. How yeah, the hell? Yeah, Louisiana, and and Louisiana is one of those states that the 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 prison industrial complex is entrenched in the dna of the state um literally and yeah it's literally one of their largest like economic proponents of the of the state and how it's you know for yeah. their economy it's ridiculous yeah how the hell do you get locked up for life for for marijuana three strikes i mean that's insane to me right <laughs> well there was this there was this big movement in the 80s and 90s people were kind of like today there was a little bit more crime. There was a rise in crime in the seventies and eighties. And, and so there was a big crackdown on all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that laws that were passed were these three strike laws. And in fact, the federal government passed these laws too. And, 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 and even if your first, even if all three strikes were relatively small offenses, you would get locked up for perhaps the rest of your life um, because of these three strike laws. And, you know, the thinking was, well, if you're a criminal and you've done it three times, you're a lifelong criminal for sure. And you don't deserve to be part of society anymore. And, and that's just not the case, especially with, with, you know, petty crimes and low level offenses and nonviolent offenses. And there's a woman I read about in, um, in the book, Just Mercy, I think was is the name of it by Ben Crump, I think it is. But Just Mercy it talks about a woman who is serving life in prison because she wrote some bad checks for seventy five dollars, and it was her third strike. And she was just where was this? That's ridiculous. God Almighty! Somewhere in the South. Somewhere in the South. Of course. Um, of course. And I'm uh, from the South. <laughs> yeah, I can I, I can hear in your voice a little. Yeah, bit. yeah. Uh, um, um, so everything south of the Mason-Dixon line, we're barely making progress on right now. We've got Mississippi recently, and Missouri, and um, Virginia's starting to come around, but the Carolinas and Georgia and Florida. Florida's got medical, but not adult, um, and you know, Alabama and, 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 and Texas and places like that. Where I live in Austin. Yeah. I mean, it's like archaic. I can't believe we're in the stage where we are currently with the law. Right. We have a lot of work to do in these, in, in these areas. And certainly there are a lot of people in prison in, in Texas for weed and, and all, all the other States too. And so you know, it's it's it it takes it's going to take some time for us to correct this. Prohibition's been around a long time, longer than my life, longer than your life. So, um, when exactly was marijuana uh, prohibited? Like, when did that start? When did it become illegal in the states? 
Um, well, it started at the state level, mainly the border states, right around, there's a, there a big revolution in Mexico around, you know, 19, 10, 12. And there was a lot of migrants who fled that war, um, that civil war, yep. and that revolutionary war. And they came to the United States. They came north. And people did not, just like today, there was a lot of folks in border states who did not like the fact that there were a flood of refugees uh, coming in from Mexico. But one of the things that happened was they brought cannabis with them because in Mexico, they had been using cannabis as a healing agent. And the um, coranderos have been using uh, uh, cannabis as one of many plants that they use to heal people in a traditional way. And so people brought it with them as their medicine. Some people brought it with them probably because it made them feel good, too. And people started to notice that the Mexicans were doing this. Down in New Orleans, it, it, the, the ganja came in, in the United States through the port of New Orleans from Jamaica. And even in those early days, there's there's some historical record where there were some mix mixes of races even in, in those days uh, in New Orleans. And jazz, let's not forget jazz was created. Yes. Well, jazz <laughs> was born in the brothels when the yeah. weed got in there. So, I, know, I know, that's why I brought it up. Yeah, yeah no, so, so, so it was black and brown folks that really carried the plant into the United States. And then folks in California and Texas and other places were like, whoa, what are these people doing? We have to make this illegal. And so it started at the state level. And then there was a guy named Harry J. Anslinger, who was the chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And he made it illegal at the federal level in 1937, basically scaring mainstream Americans into believing that cannabis would turn you into a lunatic murderer. And, and, and he actually used the word marijuana, which was a Mexican word for cannabis. And it was a, it's actually quite a beautiful word. But Harry Anslinger turned it into something a little bit more demonized and blatantly racist. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first war on cannabis people at the federal level in 1937. And it's been happening ever since. Do you think that the dare, the Nancy Reagan, that one of the byproducts of why this stuff is still going on, the incarcerations, had anything to do with why people are this three strike bullshit still going on? Because that's when it kind of got escalated, right? Oh, that it had everything to do with it. Yes. So yeah. Jimmy Carter was president before Ronald Reagan. And, and in 1978, in his State of the Union address, he advocated for decriminalizing cannabis. And if Carter had gotten a second term, that's what would have happened. Um, but Carter was in big trouble, you know, as, even in 1978 when he made. Thanks that to Iran, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that and the economy was really bad, and there was a Moscow, lot of the Olympics and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, and there was the energy crisis, and just all kinds of things went wrong, and the country was in a really sour mood, and so Carter did not win. And Reagan came in, and Reagan was anti-cannabis in a big way, and anti-drug in a big way. Very much like Nixon, of course. Yeah, he was cut from the same cloth as Nixon, and he escalated the war. Uh, and he did things like pass laws um, with urinalysis testing. So urinalysis testing didn't happen before Reagan. We challenged it in court and went all the way to the Supreme Court. We lost. The Supreme Court did not agree that your own urine is your property that cannot be searched. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Believe it or not, they considered it a reasonable search, not an unreasonable search. And urinalysis testing of everything from truck drivers to plumbers to electricians to manufacturer workers to cops to firefighters really was very effective in getting people to stop smoking weed. Because if faced with the choice of keeping your job or smoking weed... Almost everybody will choose their job, and and everybody did. So that was very effective. Then, of course, anyone who had the gumption to keep smoking weed after the urinalysis testing, you just got busted. (laughs) So And then you you went to jail, and that wasn't good enough for Reagan and, and Nancy Reagan, and they started increasing the sentencing, and something called mandatory minimum sentencing. Uh, started to occur for cannabis crimes and and other drug crimes where you'd have a minimum of 10 years you had to serve in jail or 20 years or 30 years. And it would all, only be ba- based on the amount of 
contraband that was seized. And not only was it seized, the police and law enforcement got to sell the contraband or monetize it and take all your possessions away and sell those. Of course, they didn't sell the weed they took from you, but they sold the car and the house and everything else, and they kept the money. And that was deemed legal by the Supreme Court uh, as well, um, believe it or not. And so, and then these three strike laws came after that. So it was really drug testing first, mandatory minimum second, three strikes and your outlaws third. And by the time those three things got done, we had an awful lot of people locked up. Yeah. At what point do you think, fortunately, that we're finally, what, how many states is it legal in some form or fashion? Are we 19, 21 states? Oh, way past that. If you include okay. CBD laws, we're at, I think, 39, 40, 41 states. Okay. So basically, where I'm from Savannah, Georgia, originally. That's where I grew up, went to University of Georgia. Definitely partook in marijuana many times, but was fortunate not to get busted. <laughs> that being said, what is the holdup? I think that that process is unfolding. There, the, and, you know, activists, the more we can hit the citizens of Georgia and other places like that in the heart, you know, so that they see that children with epilepsy get healed with cannabis and that seniors get helped with cannabis and veterans get helped with cannabis. That's right. They'll start to come around, you know. Um, and, and in fact, I'm sure if you pulled the people of Georgia and Alabama and Texas, you get a large majority that want legalization. So you have the elites, I call them the elites, <laughs> that are holding office that are, are sort of not executing the will of the people. And so when that happens, the people have to raise hell and get rid of those folks and put new ones in. And that's that's a gradual process that is going to take some time. So here's the thing. I'd like to think that you know, laws are important. We got to follow the rules, but I'll give you a personal story. My father had uh, stage four cancer esophageal and was in pain. I was uh, the baby in my family. So my parents had me late in life. He had me at 47. He was born in 1933, Great Depression. Smoked weed maybe three or four times, made him, you know, happy and want to eat a lot. But he was a, a very talented and brilliant man and a lawyer. So it didn't quite fit his mindset. But when he was in such agony and pain and I had to watch him through chemo, I literally broke the law four or five times to give him pot brownies to alleviate his pain. And that's just fucked up and sad that I would have to do that to help somebody that created me along with my mother, of course. Yeah, it's really sad. Did it work? It did. Absolutely. I, it helped uh, a tremendous amount. It, and, you know, he was in such pain. And it's just when you know you're dying, there's a sense of malaise. And I mean, you know, the end is near. So the first time I didn't tell, tell him because I knew he wouldn't do it. So I, I just uh, said, Dad, try these brownies. They're great. He said, oh, did your girlfriend make these? And I was like, oh, don't worry about it. I just bought it at the store. And we were watching the Super Bowl. Next thing I know, he's like, can I have, It was, I think it was like the fifth bowl of ice cream during the third quarter or something. But the point was, it was, it helped him tremendously as he was going in, into transition, so to speak. And you hear these stories all the time. And so if I had just been pulled over, I would have been fucked. Yeah, that's really sad. And a lot of people do get in trouble that way when they're trying to help their their loved ones uh, relieve their suffering. And, and, you know, like you said, Tom, we've heard these stories thousands and thousands of times. It's one of the reasons why the American people are for this and continue to those majorities to support legalization of either medical or adult use or both. Those majorities get bigger and bigger every month, every year. And at some point, if we're living in a democracy, the will of the people should be respected and implemented. And, you know, how we do that with cannabis, we're still all figuring Mm -hmm. out how to do that in a good way. But given what is available to people that is legal, 
and how harmful that is to public health and safety than cannabis, it, it really is absurd. So we have to be active and we have to make our voices heard and we have to do things like this podcast and we've got to put pressure on elected officials and we have to vote for those yeah. that support yeah. our position and we have yeah. to demonstrate and we have to donate and we have to raise hell and you know, all those things together, a whole village, a whole tribe of people doing those things together, eventually, right? eventually we prevail. That is the goal, of course, the ultimate goal, Nirvana. <laughs> and I got to meet Beto O'Rourke. He came and spoke at South By, and I went and made a sales pitch for him to appear on this podcast <laughs> because one of his great statements during the interview was about marijuana and legalization of marijuana because he said, let's face it, there are a lot of Republicans out there on the other side of the aisle that smoke weed. And so this is a thing that people should all, you know, come together and, and support. But it's baffling to me that particularly in Southern states, the one I'm from originally and the one I live in currently, that we're at a snail's pace. It's just unreal. I don't yeah. get it, man. I really don't. I don't think any of us get it. Any of us that love the plant and advocate for the plant, we don't understand it. We don't understand why this is. And it's just it's just outdated thinking. Folks that don't want to listen to the truth, don't want to listen to the science. The science is undeniable. Absolutely. Um, and we haven't even talked about industrial hemp. So, you know, which is now legal at the federal level, but, 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 but not operational the way it should be. Um, so, so that's the next step with industrial hemp. And, and there's just, it's baffling. It's frustrating. It makes us angry. And, you know, hopefully all that motivates us to create the change that we want to see happen. You're in Oakland, so let's talk about your state. And obviously, they're in leaps and bounds ahead of where I live. But what is wrong with their model? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. How did they get it wrong? Well, California has an interesting history. We got it right with medical. We got it wrong with adult. So that was our big lesson for everybody else. Nobody's listening to the lessons of California yet, and everyone's repeating the same mistake. I know. California is a state that has a long tradition of cannabis cultivation and distribution, both in the state and as an export crop. This goes back 70 or 80 years. So it's a multi-generational culture, and it's to the tune of $11 billion a year, the market. Before legalization, it was that big, and it still is that big. But only about 20 or 25 percent of the 11 billion is legal. The rest of it is the underground market. And the legal market cannot compete with the underground market on price or quality. And the underground market can't compete with the legal market on variety and innovation. So both markets are really suffering right now. And instead of having one market, we have a dual market. What's going to happen eventually is the people that have paid a lot of money for licenses and pay a lot of money for taxes and pay a lot of money for regulation, they're going to say, hey, you got to go lock up these people that don't have licenses. And we're going to have Prohibition 2.0. And it's already happening in California. It's going to happen more, I think, here. And we're well, How is it happening currently? Like, what what's going on? People are getting raided and busted um, for unlicensed grows, mainly grows. Some of them are legitimately, you know, run by not very nice people um, and organized criminals. And we're seeing that in Oklahoma too. And, you know, that's that's an appropriate place to shut down because we don't want organized crime doing this. But little mom and pops and, and legacy folks that have been doing this for generations need a path into the legal market. Most all of them want to be legal, but they can't. And the barriers of entry are too high. It literally costs millions of dollars to open a cannabis dispensary or grow or manufacturing in California just to get the license and the real estate and the equipment and the inventory and all of that. Um, and and that really locks a lot of people out. That's going to happen everywhere if, if we don't figure out how to get 
this community into the legal market. And um, we haven't quite figured that out anywhere yet. New York is the next place where people are going to try. We can build what I call stakeholder capitalism, which takes everybody into account, not just the shareholders. And, and, and when we do that, when we take our staff into account, our communities in, uh, into account, our customers, don't forget the customer, very important. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, when we take all those into account in our business model and we spend money on those things, not just hand it to the shareholders, we actually perform better. Companies perform better that way. And mainstream consulting groups like the Potential Project and Deloitte have demonstrated this fairly recently in the last couple of years with exhaustive studies across thousands of companies and hundreds of countries. And companies that are run and have diversity in them and that are practicing stakeholder capitalism perform better. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we can convince everybody <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll appeal to everyone's greed and say your companies will perform better if you're more diverse. The industry will perform better if we, instead of all fighting over a 20% of the California market, if we create a framework that allows for that entire 11 billion to be legal. And then, you know, we can start doing things like interstate commerce packs between states to make the supply chains more efficient and all the other things that that right now the lack of federal legalization and the patchwork we have with all the states prevents a lot of those things from happening. So, you know, while we've made a lot of progress in places like California and Illinois and Massachusetts, the frameworks are not right and we have an enormous amount of work to do to get them right. Yeah, and so I have to bring up going back to California I read uh, one of your recent articles, Cali Sober. Can you talk about that? I love that article. It wasn't very long, but it's fascinating to me. Uh, how is, you know, you're telling me what's going on legally with uh, the laws possibly being repealed somewhat, but then you have a culture now of Cali Sober. Will you lighten me, uh, your take on it? You said a great line that I have to repeat. Cali Sober just may be the lion that makes the most noise. I, I love that last line that you wrote in that article, but would you yeah. mind telling, telling the audience about it? And Cali what's going Sober on? Is, a, is, is something that is a lifestyle practice, mm -hmm. and it is designed to reduce the harm that people might do to themselves by misusing alcohol or other drugs or compounds. You can also misuse your cell phone. And so it's not just intoxicants, but Cali Sober is, is, is largely about intoxicants. And the idea is by using cannabis and psychedelics, or maybe just cannabis, or maybe just psychedelics, depending on the person, we can avoid or perhaps reduce our harm exposure to things like alcohol and harder drugs and save lives. Right now, we're, we have an epidemic of addiction, epidemics of overdosing. We have this Mental fentanyl. Health. Yeah. Fentanyl's just ripping across the country. Oh, God. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to funerals that I don't want to go to. Um, and so are lots of other people across the country and all throughout the world right now. And, People are dying. So, and traditional 12 step programs to get people out of that misuse pattern and into something healthier, the 12 steps don't always work for everybody. And, and not everybody feels at home there, especially if you happen to smoke weed or you happen to, you know, do a psychedelic trip once or twice a year. Right. You if you go into a 12 step environment, they, and you can't really admit that, or you have to be sober, sober. The, the, this idea of Cali sober, where you take a little bit of cannabis now and then, or maybe you take it every day, but you're also a highly functioning person or just, or, or a functioning person. And you're, you're not misusing the cannabis. You're not misusing the psychedelics. It's important for us to remember that it's misuse of the compound. We can misuse cannabis. We can misuse psychedelics. Mushroom, psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah. People do. So, 
And when you're in a misuse pattern, you need to get help. And, and sometimes that help is a traditional 12 step program. Sometimes that help is uh, a harm reduction approach to sobriety, which Cali sober is very synonymous to harm reduction. And, and you can go to places like the harm reduction therapy center in San Francisco and other harm reduction centers across the country. And you can go into recovery and, and be able to say, Hey, I like to smoke weed, but I want to get off of the alcohol. I want to get off this. I want to get off that. And you won't be judged. And you won't judged. Be judged. Yeah, exactly. And those folks may say, Hey, you're misusing cannabis too. We need to work on that. But, but whatever it is, you're getting help. And when we're in a misuse pattern with any intoxicant, that's what we need to do. We need to get help. Um, and then once we have reset our dopamine system and our reward system in our brain, and it's not just the compound that's giving us all our, of our rewards in life, then we can decide what kind of sobriety we want to practice. So I talk a lot about Cali Sober because I've seen it save a lot of people's lives. I've seen it keep people away from harder drugs and, and, and more destructive compounds. And I've seen, I've seen people be able to also incorporate other things into their lifestyle that typically are thought of as California things, whether it be yoga or veganism or driving an electric car or, you know, any number of, yeah. <laughs> of other quote unquote California things that we've popularized. We certainly didn't invent yoga out here, um, uh, but we did popularize yoga in, in, in a lot of ways and Pilates and all these different alternative health things that folks are practicing these days. A lot of them were popularized, not all of them, but a lot of them were popularized in California. And it's all sort of part of that Cali sober approach. I have lots of herbs in my life besides cannabis um, to help me. Yeah. Um, through aches and pains uh, or colds and sicknesses. Um, I have different lifestyle things I do, like exercise and meditation and prayer. And these things, you know, in they, help. They, help my, they help me function. They help me have a, a higher expression of myself. And they keep me out of trouble. Yeah. Uh, um, they keep me out of, of, of trouble. So I've learned a lot from that. You know, when I was a younger man, I, I didn't have misuse problems with alcohol or drugs, but I certainly had exposure to lots of people that had that and had to be in relationships and business and with some of them and felt the impact of that in a pretty big way. And so and your family, I, I read, I come from a family of many alcoholics recovering yeah. mostly, but I lost some of my dearest family members to alcohol as well. Yeah, yeah. my mom's wow. side of the family. Same. My mom's as well. Yeah, my mom's side of the family, you know, my grandparents and my uncles and aunts, almost all of them were undone by this. So uh, it's and I had to go to a lot of funerals, you know, I went to their funerals. Yeah. You went to their funerals. And, and it's such a shame when someone's been cut down younger in life than any of us would like. And there's nothing harder than that. There's nothing harder than burying someone like that. And, and so that's why I'm talking about Cali Sober. I'm hoping to save some lives. I got a, yeah. I got a little book I'm trying to put together on it right now. We'll see, oh, great. We'll see if the publishers uh, accept it. And Do you have a title? Well, right now it's just called Cali Sober, A Different Approach to Sobriety, but publishers will decide what the title is. <laughs> but I wanted something as a placeholder that was very um, – it's an anthology, so I have a lot of guest contributors. I don't actually do the writing, I edit. And so oh. I have, you know, people like David Crosby and uh, Talib Quili yeah. and Laganza Estranja and Pat Denning from the Harm Reduction Therapy Center in San Francisco and all these folks that are contributing, I hope will contribute to the book um, if if I can get a publisher to publish it. And and you know, maybe if that happens we'll we'll popularize this even more. And we'll get to it, you know, and, and help. That's and, the idea. and the one, yeah. So Cali Sober, what I'm hoping since Texas, which is with these archaic laws of, I've already said, 
with the influx of all the Californians, maybe if they can get involved at grassroots level, we can make a difference, you know, uh, because I've felt like and I was a black sheep in my family. Here I am seeing the dearest people in my most poor people in my life suffer from alcoholism. And then I discovered psilocybin and I've been, I've suffered you know, from the age of 16, I talk about this all the time. Mental illness is one of my main passions to fight and, and combat. And uh, it's become, it's always been a crisis, but because of COVID, it's exacerbated and become an epidemic in itself. I became a black sheep in my family because I was using, not every day, but like once, twice a month to alleviate my depression. And I wasn't drinking like some people in my family or my close friends. Because where I'm from, Savannah is a big, huge drinking town. It's just part of the culture. It's one of three cities in America where you can walk around with an open container. The other two, of course, are New Orleans and Las Vegas. So there's a fun fact for you. But my point in all that is uh, I'm hoping that this culture is going to change more rapidly than it has been. And I, I read something. Could you tell me a little bit about Space Cowboy and Libby Cooper, her company? Sure. Yeah. Libby Cooper is a dynamic, talented, smart woman. She has a partner, her life partner and her have a pre-roll joint company out here in California called Space Cowboy. And the company, the origin story of the company was a psychedelic origin story. Um, there's a national park in Southern California called Joshua Tree. Joshua nope. Tree National Park, which is out in the desert. And a lot of people, including <laughs> me, um, have gone out there and, and, taken, <laughs> and taken psychedelics. It's one of the sacred places that people go to. to and it's a really great place to do psychedelics because no one's going to bother you out there. Exactly. It's a big lot of open space. You you won't feel claustrophobic. And other than getting lost a little bit, <laughs> yeah, um, that's which you, isn't that bad actually. Yeah, while it's, you're tripping, it's, it's actually a liberating feeling. It yeah, as long as you can find your way back. So they were out there one weekend or maybe a little longer, and and they they were inspired to start this company because one of the problems we had in California. For a long time, for the first year or two of legalization, adult use legalization was everybody was rolling joints from their shake and their trim that they had in their gardens and the joints <laughs> just weren't that good. And people were just disappointed in the quality of the joints. And, and, and Libby and her partner were shared in that. And they said, you know what, we're going to start a company and our joints are not going to be made from trim and they're going to be made from bud and we're going to put hash in them and we're going to have a cool little fun brand and we're gonna lean into the fact that it's a fun brand it's a psychedelic brand and it's um it's a brand that's about people who like good strong medicine and good strong joints and you can tell a good joint when you first hit it right it, it gets your attention <laughs> yeah yeah a good joint it's like mm. it's a, it's immediately the thing that happens is you go mm. Now there's a joint. There we go. Yeah. Right. And that's the reaction you always want. And so their their little company gives people that reaction. And they have a great social media feed and they're surfers and yeah. they're young and they're beautiful and they're all over the world and um, fabulous people, um, super smart people. And they're example, you know, to folks who want to start a little authentic cannabis company you can do it too if, if libby and her partner can do it uh, you can do it so that's what people need to know that's why i wanted to bring it up that there's still a possibility to do that you know oh yeah one of the nice things about the feds not legalizing weed is that every state's got their own framework and you know if you can figure out a way to get enough resources together here in california the cheapest part of the supply chain is the one they occupy the manufacturing cultivation costs millions of dollars retail costs millions of dollars but you can grind out a little manufacturing thing for a few hundred thousand dollars you know once you get the license which might take cost you you know a little bit six figures too but you can crank it out and and it, if your product's good and your branding's good you can get on the shelves and next thing you know you're on a lot of shelves 
Uh, and then you have the wonderful problem of, oh my goodness, I don't have enough weed to roll in the joints right now to meet the demand. I better go get some more. And yep. all of a sudden you're buying more weed from growers and other folks in the supply chain. And and that's how we grow an industry in every state. That's how it happened. So manufacturing is a place where it's a little bit lower barrier to entry than retail or cultivation, certainly in California. So I wanted to bring this up. Like, why haven't states, particularly the poverty stricken ones like Mississippi agrarian states, why haven't they caught on to this? South Carolina. And I, I don't it's baffling to me. Well, prohibition. One of the things that drives the cost of weed up is when you grow it indoors. So when you grow cannabis indoors, you have to spend millions of dollars controlling the temperature and the humidity for the plants. And you have to control different temperature, different humidity for each stage of production. So when a plant is a little tiny baby, it's one humidity and temperature. When it's vegging and growing, it's another. When it's flowering, it's another. It takes a huge amount of electricity. It takes a huge amount of machinery. And all that stuff costs a small fortune, literally millions of dollars. Now, Mississippi grows some great weed outdoors. Um, yeah. Um, people have been doing it for quite some time. That's crop, man. <laughs> you know, and, they um, make one. But they don't, won't allow it. So what's going to happen is, and this is everywhere, uh, you know, like Pennsylvania, similar. Massachusetts does allow outdoor cultivation. So um, in the western part of the state where there's not that many people, so they're less uptight about it. And you can... Yeah. Now you have to put a big fence around it. That'll cost $75,000 and more security cameras than Fort Knox. But you, you can do it. You can, the, the actual planting of the weed is a lot cheaper and farming becomes a lot cheaper that way. And that's a great source for biomass for bait pens and hash and oils and, and edibles and things like that. And if we can do that, it'll, it'll lower the price uh, and folks can, you know, get cheaper weed in the legal market. Women are definitely up underrepresented in cannabis and the psychedelic space. You were raised by a single mother. How has that influenced your leadership style to get the word out and fight for the movement? Well, I was raised by a single mom. My parents split up when I was very, very young. We also had a death in our family. My brother Daniel died when I was two, and, and, and that had a big impact on our family. And my mom was a great mom. Uh, but she wasn't so good at providing and making a living. She was, you know, she was a housewife for 20, 25 years before a divorce happened. And, and so it was really hard for her to, she went back to school and all that, but it was really hard for her to make a living. Thankfully, my older brother, Steve, uh, was selling weed and making pretty yeah. living. And it was a very hard thing for my brother to have that burden on him as a teenager to help support my mom and me. But he did. And when I got old enough to help, you know, I certainly did too. But what you learn by being raised by a single mom, you learn a lot about resourcefulness. You look, you learn a lot about having community around you. My mom solved her problems with friends and community around her when she, you know, needed a break from the pressure of being a single mom. I was off with other I was at, I was with other moms that she, sure. you know, and, as I was too. Yeah. yeah. And so you learn these things. And right now as a leader, I work with women by and large more than I work with men. I, I have a better time working with women. Same. Um, um, <laughs> Easier. And, yeah. <laughs> the well, egos aren't, you know, yeah, I mean, and all that shit. Tend to, they, they work really hard at the goal and the job at hand, but they also are very concerned about how they're perceived yep. uh, while doing that. I find women tend to get the job done with a little bit more focus on the job itself and a little less focus on how they're being perceived. Um, so that's one thing I've noticed that's different. Women tend to be more collaborative in their approach, which I like. I, I don't pretend to have all the answers as a leader. I like to create an environment where other people come up with the answers, not me. And so women tend to do that really well. I mean, that that's how women have survived, you know, a long time <laughs> running, 
running households, running businesses, yeah. running their families, running everything. You know, women really make the trains run on time in our culture and our society. Thank God. Yeah. I don't know oh. where I'd probably be in a ditch if it weren't for uh, the strong, badass women that help raise. Yeah. Them. Right. And yeah. My yeah. aunts and, and my sisters and my mom. Yeah. You know? and, and I love strong, badass women. And, and, and you can build amazing things with strong, badass women. So that's some of what I learned from being raised by a single mom and just, you know, that, that life's hard and that we should have some compassion for each other and, um, understand that, you know, there's burdens and, and stories that people carry with them that we need to be aware of and as leaders and, and make sure that they, we create space for everybody's background and perceptions and things they're good at and maybe things they're not so good at we need to create enough space for all to contribute so embrace your strengths and and qualities and then delegate where your weaknesses are you know that's right within a community yes and create community that's right that's where i think the real separation between female leadership and men men tend to create transactions and deals uh, women tend to create more community. And I, I like creating community. I think it's fun. It'll make you live longer. Yes, absolutely. I did want to ask you real quick, uh, something I've read. Let's talk about the federal level real quick. Biden. Yep. How are your feelings on that? I mean, he's definitely uh, an airball thus far, as far as decriminalizing. Where do you forecast or foresee this during his administration? Um, I'm disappointed in Biden. I think all of us are. Yeah. Biden promised. I know. <laughs> he promised to t- release prisoners and expunge records. And he said no one should be in jail for marijuana. There, there's a, there are people going to jail every single day in the federal penal system, not for a little while, for years and years and years, mandatory minimums, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And they're going to jail right now. I know what the fuck, man. Like, what's I've, Trump? What were his numbers? Like, I feel like their Biden's not that much better as far as what's going on with the rest. Trump was better. Trump actually. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, Trump was the irony in all this. You know, I mean. Yeah, Trump was better. My organization, Last Prisoner Project, actually worked behind the scenes. Okay. With a bunch of other groups and the Trump administration to release. It was a couple dozen cannabis prisoners at the end, right at the last couple days of Trump's term. I remember um, he did that. And and Biden has not done that yet to the extent that certainly he should. And you'd think that Biden would want to put Trump to shame statistically on that and just well, um, uh, fulfill a promise that he made as well. Right. That's not and, and that, you know? that promise has not been filled. So there's going to be a lot of activism on that promise between now and the midterms. <laughs> I know that there's an effort that called um, no pardon, no votes for Democrats. Yep. Um, so if you don't, if we don't start getting some pardons and getting people out of jail, we're not going to show up. We're not going to vote, man. We're not going to show up. No. And, and in the midterms, that's a really extreme position for us to take. But our people are in prison and it's a it's not an unreasonable position for us to take because there was a promise made. And two years is plenty of time, even with the pandemic and a war and everything else, man. Don't run for president if you can't chew gum and walk. I know. Fucking bullshit, man. Um, And it's not hard. He's got a bevy of lawyers over there, Justice Department, and they could write this up in three days and be done with it. And, you know, Biden at heart is an anti-crime crusader, and he's a prohibitionist at heart. I know, I know. But but people thought he was the the lesser of two evils, but ironically, with this cause, uh uh-uh. Well, I mean, I, I I think, you know, gosh, the lesser of two evils. Well, we still have two evils. But look, man, there are a lot of people running for president on the Democratic side that have much better policies with cannabis. Bernie Sanders had the best policy. Plank Without question, Sanders. man. 
that I've ever seen by far. I know. He blew I know. everybody else away. And, and, you know, I'm a one issue voter. So whoever has the best cannabis policy is the one I vote for. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I wrote Bernie in, I think, because I'm in California and there's no way yeah. Trump, Trump was going to win here. So there's not a lot of point in, in, in voting for Biden because I knew what was going to happen. Me and my brother knew that Biden was not serious about this. Yeah. You could, it seemed like it was sort of a veiled or can't, you know, promise in a sense. It was run to the left during the primaries, run to the right when you get in the office. So there's a perception in the democratic party that you can't win unless you're center, which is bullshit. <laughs> I agree. I think that that's a, a, a strategic error on the Democrats' part, but they've been making that error my entire life, and sure, um, and they they're going to keep making it. It looks like because they're just not doing anything that's going to mobilize young people, that's going to mobilize black and brown people, that's going to mobilize people like me, even cannabis people. I mean, you got to do something when you have power. Uh, and if you don't yes. do it, you're not going to keep power. You're just not. And, and you know, the, the reason Trump lost is there, there was a lot of things he did not deliver on. Um, yes. Um, and he was uh, a huge motivator for the opposition <laughs> to come out and vote. And Democrats, it seems like for the midterms, they're going to run to the center and they're going to say, we passed infrastructure and we did this big thing. And now we're, you know, we're resisting Ukraine. Vote for us. And people are going to be like, huh? I yeah. You didn't really do anything for me. Right. You didn't really uh, do anything for me or my family. I, I, exactly. Uh, you didn't do anything. And what people don't realize, and this is what I want you to help me with, is grassroots local politics make a difference. And so what can my audience are mostly lean to the left. And uh, from what I've got a lot of listeners in California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Texas, Georgia. But what organizations and how can people that like myself and listeners who want to get involved, for instance, your project, like can we? Oh, yeah. Lastprisonerproject.org is our website. We have a get involved or get active tab. I think it's get active. And if you don't have any money to donate, you can write a letter to a prisoner. We show you how to do that. There's certain rules you have to follow when you write a letter to a prisoner. We show you how to do that. And you can, for the price of a stamp, do something amazing for a prisoner. When you get a letter, even from a stranger, when you're locked up, it's a huge, huge lifeline. It makes your day. It makes your movement. And I encourage people to do that. If you want to support, you know, there are legalization groups like Marijuana Policy Project or the Drug Policy Alliance or Normal or uh, yep. any number of those folks. They all they all need donations. They all need volunteers. They all need help. They're all active in Texas and other places trying to get these laws changed. And there are local chapters. You can almost everywhere there's a local normal chapter or a local MPP or DPA chapter. And you can join them. There's also a great group called Students for Sensible Drug Policy. So if you're a student, um, I don't think UT has a SSDP chapter. They, they don't, but uh, there's 50,000 students that go there. There ought to be one. I know. Uh, I know. So I was hoping you were going to bring that up, man. I'm yeah, glad. that's one thing somebody can do right now who's going to school there. Start an SSDP chapter. You can go to SSDP.org, I think is the website, or just yeah. Google Students for Sensible Drug Policy. You'll get it. It is not hard to start a chapter. They will give you money. <laughs> Thank they will you. Give you money. Thank you. Thank you for saying this. They will give you money to start <laughs> a chapter. It might not yep. be a lot of money, but it'll be enough. But it's money. money, and it's for a great cause. I mean, yeah, you can enough money to have meetings, to post flyers, to maybe have a little newsletter, you know, to do some social media, and you can make a huge difference. There are people at UT right now getting busted for weed. And they're getting kicked out of school. For one joint, man. Yeah. One joint. Yeah. Um, and if you're on the football team or something, you probably have to pass a piss test. So our activism has to, it's all around, it's not hard to plug into this. The organizations are there. And 
they all need help and they all need money and they all need resources and they all need volunteers. And, you know, the most important thing that all of us can do is participate um, in any small way, in any way you can. Um, yes, no, apathy is not an option right now, man. Apathy. Well, I mean, but a lot of people don't, don't, they just don't want to be bothered with it, but we have to be bothered with it because you're only one event away from getting busted and thrown out of school yourself. If you're your life going off the tracks. Oh, or, completely off the cliff. Yeah, um, know. You know, you'll, you'll go from having a career in business or academia yeah, or science, science. Or, yeah. And, and then now you can't get a job exactly at all, you know, not even flipping burgers sometimes. So this is serious stuff that we're all engaged in here. Also, I know we're running out of time and forgive me, but I've enjoyed talking. I mean, this is great. Psychedelics is there and MDMA with cannabis. Is there a model that they can use? The psychedelic revolution is right behind the cannabis revolution. And yeah, uh, hopefully we'll do a little bit better job with the psychedelics. than we, some of the lessons we've learned with cannabis, I hope the folks in the psychedelic community will take to heart. But decrim is the first step, and we've got that in Oregon. we got that here in the city of Oakland. and Denver, it's, uh, you know, Denver, various, yeah. Portland, various places, so forth. Yeah, but. so that, that, that's the first step. And, 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 you know, we could talk a whole nother hour about psychedelics, uh-huh. but, but um, plant medicine is coming, and it's becoming mainstream more and more every day. And, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, it'll be a, a true brave new world. It better be, man. I mean, it's changed my life and saved me. I've suffered battles of depression that if I hadn't discovered these plants, ayahuasca, psilocybin, I'd probably, God knows where I would be. But before I let you go, man, because you're big music, uh, I'm into music, and I read that you have a huge vinyl collection. You got to humor me because I busted out some of my great ones. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, man. Like, I don't know what you, I don't know who you got to speak with, but please, like, just humor me, dude. I love vinyl. I've got oh, a great. Yeah, man. What What are your What are your proudest or your best ones? You got JJ Kale, Troubadour. Oh my God, that's great. Well, uh, television, uh, friggin', of course, Exile Main oh, Street. Oh yes, not, not an original. Uh, Allman Brothers, Brothers and Sisters. Led Zeppelin four. Yes, all the Led Zeppelins I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just got Stop Making Sense, the soundtrack, Talking Heads. How about speaking of this, Rolling Stones? Oh, yeah, got, Emotional Rescue. Love that album. Yeah, yeah. One of my and, favorite Stones. Yes, one of my favorite album covers right here, speaking of Talking Heads. Yep. Boom. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. And one of the things that was interesting, my partner, Samantha, her mom passed away a few years ago and we inherited a whole bunch of vinyl. And that's what inspired me to get a record player was what a treasure, man. What a, what a time. Digging into that vinyl collection she had. And she actually worked for a record company when she was alive. And so that's mainly what I've been digging into and discovering all that mainly from the seventies and early eighties, a lot of that music. And um, now I've gotten turned on to vinyl. I, you know, I'm starting to pick up pieces here and there on my own now. I like the Talking Heads album, so um, it's great. You know, the 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 sound quality on vinyl so much better. better I love than it, man. Compressed digital yeah. sound. It's too compressed, and it's you lose a lot of it. So um, I've, I, I now I just got to get some badass speakers for my turntable. Same. Really, what, really hear it. What, you know? yeah, which kind of turn, turntable do you Oh, have? I got the Vitrola uh, um, ones. They're not the super highest quality one, but you can right. plug a really good speaker in there, and then you got then you can rock and roll pretty good. Do you have one that's even wireless? Like, I've got an audio yes. technical. I have the, the cool, di- yeah. you, can, you can plug in digital speakers yeah, and other yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, <laughs> it's kind of a hybrid. <laughs> kind of a hybrid but you know everything is these days but i i had to bring it up man i, I just love vinyl so i appreciate Thank you, man. you me too well i'm glad you're a musical music lover and this has been a great conversation thank you so much for having me tom and I'm, I'm 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 thrilled that you're doing this 
in Austin. And, and I hope that all your listeners will just be inspired to keep, keep on keeping on. Yeah, dude, I'm not going to stop. This is like, I can um, tell. <laughs> yeah, you feel my passion. Oh like, yeah, it's, man. It's visceral, but logical. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no, no. I love it. I love it. I can tell you're not going to stop. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes, man. So thank you. And I'm glad you joined me because of your expertise and people need to hear this. So Andrew, thank you again. Have a great weekend, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. I certainly love talking to another lover of music and vinyl, not to mention a visionary and best practices in the cannabis industry and a motivator to change hearts and minds. There are several ways Andrew offers multiple levels of support and advocacy and continues to adapt his message and the products related to cannabis for health, safety, and long-term welfare of the individual. Thank you again, Andrew, for such an intelligent and thought-provoking discussion. Next week, we continue our discussion around the topics of plant medicine with the transition to psychedelics and their opportunity to open creative channels as we meet Bijou Finney, otherwise known as the Mushroom Mamacita. Bijou works with individuals and couples on exploring microdosing to having breakthrough experiences with psilocybin. If you have joined me on this journey thus far, now is the time where I want to celebrate the growth and expansion of my family too, and welcome into this world my new cousin, little Leighton McIntyre, who is the daughter to the closest thing I have to a real brother, Jimmy, and his wife, Leanna. As some of you know, I've lost close friends and family over the past several months. Life can be seemingly very fragile and chaotic at times, which is why it is a real joy to know that little Layton and her mom, Leanna, are both healthy. I can't wait to meet this little girl, hopefully very soon. Thank you for listening. Please take care of yourself and take care of someone else. Until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Nirvana.